Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode, 135, is a bonus episode. That's right, another bonus episode, and it covers the Moncada Barracks attack, as we outlined in an earlier discussion. It's an interesting story with further insight into Fidel and his Cuban revolution, and we're going to tell it mostly in Fidel's words. But as I explained in the last episode, this is a bonus episode and thus not critical to direct details of the JFK assassination. And it's a long one today, so you won't hurt my feelings if you skip it. But I hope you won't. After listening to this episode, you might ask if Fidel Castro had nine lives like a cat and whether or not he used one of them up in this raid. I think he might have used two up, one during the raid and another during the point that he was captured in the mountains afterward although his capture is another story, and it's not one we'll tell here. Fidel, in all probability, should have been finished right then, but he wasn't. And so here is the Don Quixote-like story of Castro and the Moncada barracks attack. Today, we will again borrow from Fidel's oral autobiography and tell the story, mostly in Fidel's own words, with some fine-tuning to improve the understanding of it, And again, this is a story, but you have to keep in mind that Fidel is telling the story. The Moncada barracks attack was an abject failure, but it was this failure that actually propelled Castro into the position of some form of a living martyr, and it was as a result of his subsequent trial regarding the attack. And that trial created a platform to deliver his history-making, history-will-absolve-me speech. So failure, in this case, wasn't so bad for Fidel, and history for Fidel Castro was not in need of a terrible rewrite here. And it was for that reason alone that we can listen to Fidel's version of the story. (laughs) Although Fidel does manage to make himself out to be a hero of sorts for just a moment as he shoots at a machine gun nest and takes responsibility for the main screw-up that, at least in his mind, probably caused the real problem with the mission. It should be noted that some accounts deny that Castro fired a single shot that day. Funny how that works. History is always written or rewritten by the ultimate victors. I'm just saying. So, without further ado, let's listen to bonus episode 135 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Before we get started using Fidel Castro's own words to tell this little story, you have to appreciate that Castro was already, by his own admission, about halfway to being an internationalist, as he called it. After all, as he said, he had been in Bogota in 1948 
and he joined the students there in their struggle. We already had a program, he said, remembering that the program, the platform, if you will, contained, among other things, the fight for the Malvinas and the return of the Panama Canal. All of this was impactful, and despite the lies that he would tell on television to the world in 1959 about his political leanings, you know, the ones where he said he believed in democracy, well, by his own admission, in his own oral autobiography, he'd already been a convinced Marxist-Leninist for several years, at the moment that the Batista coup d'etat actually took place. Well, now I will tell the story of Castro, and again, mostly in his own words about the Moncada attack. And so here we go. I'd already been a convinced Marxist-Leninist for several years. I say that because of the values I'd acquired and because of what I'd learned in all those years at the University of Havana. Without those lessons, I wouldn't have been able to play any role at all. When Batista's coup took place in 1952, I had already formulated a plan for the future. I decided to launch a revolutionary program and organize a popular uprising. From that moment on, I had a clear idea of the struggle ahead and then the fundamental revolutionary ideas behind it, the ideas that are contained in my writing of History Will Absolve Me. I already had the idea that a revolutionary takeover of power was necessary. It all stemmed from what was going to happen after the 1st of June elections that year. Nothing was going to change. The frustration and the disillusionment were going to be repeated all over again. And it was not possible to go back again, back over those long-traveled roads that led nowhere. As far as first deciding to attack them at the Mancata barracks, well, I suspected that there were signs that Batista was planning a coup. I reported my suspicions to the leaders of the Orthodox Party, and they said they would look into it. They did, and they came back and told the directorate, which I was not a member of, that there was no danger and everything was quiet. But then we became convinced that nobody was going to do anything and that there was not going to be any fight against Batista and that many of the existing groups in which there were lots and lots of people who were members of several groups at the same time well, they were not prepared. They were not organized to carry out the armed struggle that I was hoping for once the coup took place. A professor at the university, a man named Rafael Garcia Barcena, for example, came to talk to me because he wanted to seize the Colombia military base in Havana, which was one of the regime's major bulwarks. He said to me, I've got people inside the garrison that will support us. I said back to him, you want to take over Colombia? And you say they're going to pave the way for you. Well, I said to him, don't talk to anybody else. We've got enough men and we can keep the action totally secret. <laughs> he did just the opposite. He talked to over 20 organizations and within a few days, all of Havana, including the army, knew what this professor was planning. He was a good, decent man who gave some of these classes that more or less high-ranking military personnel would take part in as part of their education. You see, Barcena was one of their professors. As you might expect, everybody was sent to prison, including the professor. But even after that perfectly predictable outcome, which came just a few weeks after my conversation with Barcena, when we discovered that the takeover of Colombia was now common knowledge, we decided to act right away with our own forces, which were superior in number, discipline, and training to all the other juntas. We analyzed the situation and formulated a plan. We'd chosen Santiago de Cuba as the place to begin the struggle. As far as how I put together the group of militants who were leading to attack the Moncada, well, I'd done quite a bit of proselytizing and speech-making because I already had a clear idea of how to make a revolution, and I had the habit of studying each and every combatant who volunteered determining his motivations and ensuring that he understood the rules of organization and conduct, explaining our goals and principles, explaining what I could and should explain. 
Without that approach, you couldn't have conceived the plan for the Moncada. I was amazed at how fast, using the right arguments and a number of examples, you could persuade somebody that society that we lived in was absurd and that it had to be changed. Initially, I began the job with a handful of teams. There were a lot of people who were against theft, misappropriation of funds, unemployment, abuse, injustice, and it was all things that they thought were attributable to bad politicians. They couldn't see that it was the system that created all of that. We know that capitalism's influences, invisible to the majority of people, act on the individual without the individual's awareness. Many people were of the opinion that if you brought an archangel down from heaven, the most expert in them all, and gave him the job of governing the republic, that would bring about administrative honesty. But I was totally convinced that the system had to be done away with. The kids I recruited were orthodoxies, very anti-Batista, very good, honest kids, but they lacked any political education. They had class instinct, I would say, but not class consciousness. As I explained at the beginning, we began to recruit and train men not in order to make a revolution, but rather to engage in a struggle, along with others, to reestablish the constitutional status quo of 1952, when the constitutional system was short-circuited by Fulgencio Batista. We organized as a fighting force not to make a revolution, but rather to join all the other anti-Batista forces, because after the coup on the 10th of March, 1952, well, it was elementary that all forces had to be united. The party that won the 1948 elections, the Authentic Party, was in a power struggle, and it was pretty corrupt. But Batista was much worse. As far as how many men we had, well, we didn't have a centavo. We didn't have anything. What I did have was a relationship with the party, the Orthodox Party, which had a lot of young people in it, all very anti-Batista. They were like the antithesis of Batista. In that respect, there was no other organization comparable to it in the country. The ethical and political stature of the youth wing of the party was very high. I couldn't say that they had, as I said to you earlier, a high level of political awareness, revolutionary awareness, class consciousness, because when all was said and done, the leadership of that party, like always, except in Havana, where there was a large group of intellectuals and professionals, well, it had gradually fallen into the hands of landowners and other wealthy men. But the majority of the party were good men, honest, hardworking people, even some from the middle class. They weren't even particularly anti-imperialistic because the subject of imperialism was simply not discussed. It was discussed, but only within the circles of the Communist Party. That was how low the revolutionary spirit of the Cuban people had fallen after the Second World War. It had been crushed under the overwhelming weight of the Yankees and their ideological and advertising machinery. As far as how many men we trained for the assault, well, we actually trained 1,200 young men. That exact figure, 1,200, shows that when we reached that number, we stopped recruiting future combatants. We created a small army. We didn't use all of them, but that's the number we trained. I spoke with each one of them. I strove very assiduously to do that. Within a few months, we had recruited the 1,200 men. I put 50,000 kilometers or about 30,000 miles on that car, a car whose engine blew up, by the way, just a few days before the Moncada barracks attack. It was a beige Chevrolet with a license plate 50315. I still remember it. So then I exchanged it for another car, which we rented just a few days before the 26th of July. We recruited and trained 1,200 men, as I was saying, in less than a year. Quite a number. They were almost all members of the Orthodox youth, and we came to have tremendous discipline and unity of vision. They trusted in our efforts, they believed in our arguments, and they nourished our hopes. And to answer your question, yes, 
They were all very young, all of them. They were young guys, 20, 22, 23, 24 years old, most of them, maybe a few around 30. Many came from cells that we organized in various cities. The city we got the most from was Artemisa, which at the time belonged to the province of Pinar del Rio. Artemisa provided between 20 and 30 future combatants, an excellent group. I recruited some people that I already knew, but I didn't know most of them because I wasn't around the official leaders of the Orthodox Party very much. As far as where we trained for the assault, well, at the university is where we trained our men. We even organized and trained some commando groups there. We were helped out by a man who was quite an expert, a guy who hung out in revolutionary circles. He was so strange that he aroused more suspicion than enthusiasm amongst us. But he didn't know anything about our plans, and he never saw a weapon. What we were doing looked more like some kind of sporting activity. As far as target practice goes, we did that somewhere else. When we were on the campus at the University of Havana, it was about assembling and disassembling rifles and firing practice with blanks. Pedro Moret helped us with that, and he set up his training center right there in the Hall of Martyrs. The university was quite autonomous back then, and students had no problem mobilizing. For a while, throughout one whole early stage, University Hill had a certain degree of immunity to it. So that was where everybody went to protest. Batista and his army must have laughed at those practices of ours. I started out organizing our people into cells of six, eight, ten, or twelve men and then training them. Each cell had a leader. I did the political work and the organizational work. I never showed my face around the training sites at the university. I was practically underground so far as Batista and the other organizations were concerned. We actually did most of the target practice at firing ranges in Havana. We disguised some of our companeros as good, outstanding members of the bourgeois, or businessman, or whatever, depending upon what you look like, your style, your abilities. We registered them first, for example, in hunting clubs, and then they'd invite us to their clubs to practice, say, clay pigeon shooting. Actually, we were able to perfectly legally train 1,200 men, although only some of them were trained in live fire. Batista's forces of repression didn't pay us much attention because they knew we didn't have a cent. We didn't have a thing, really. Naturally, I made myself pretty scarce in all those places. The ones that really had the money, the millions, were the former government people. They also had weapons. They brought them in from abroad. They all had contacts and all the resources for that. I myself had some training. Well, I was in the Bogotazo, but really it was especially what I learned at home from the time I was about 10 or 11 years old. I was always fooling around with some gun or another, and I was a pretty good shot. And in my time in revolutionary fights out of this country, I had training, training in how to shoot a mortar and other weapons. I guess it was almost a war. I was also president of the Committee for Dominican Democracy. It was 1947, and the Second World War was over, and Trujillo had been in power in the Dominican Republic for years, and Cuban students had a great deal of antipathy towards him. I got no real military experience in those circumstances, as there was absolutely no tactics or strategy involved while I was there. What I learned most from these expeditions was how not to organize something like that, and how important it was to choose your people. Regarding the actual attack on the Moncada barracks itself, I will say that those barracks could have been taken. And if we had taken Moncada, we would have toppled Batista without question right away. We would have seized thousands of weapons. We were all dressed as sergeants, mimicking the antecedents that happened during the sergeants' uprising, which had been led by Batista himself in 1933. He wasn't the principal organizer, but since he had a little more education and he was clever and he was part of the senior staff, 
a stenographer for the Army General Staff, he was made the leader of the sergeants, too. As far as the plan of attack goes, if I were to organize a plan for taking the Moncada barracks again, I would do it exactly the same way. I wouldn't change a thing. What failed there was that we lacked sufficient combat experience, but later we picked that up. Luck and chance also had a decisive influence in that plan, which was really quite good in terms of concept, organization, secrecy, and other factors. We failed because of a detail that could have easily been overcome. And although it wasn't calculated that way, the support of the USSR was essential after the triumph in 1959. Honestly, we would not have had that support in 1953. In 1953, the spirit and policy of Stalin prevailed in the USSR. Although Stalin had died a few months earlier in March 1953, it was still the Stalin era in July. And Khrushchev was not Stalin. We actually attacked two barracks complexes. Besides the Moncada, there was the Bayamo barracks, and we did that as a check to the counterattack. We planned to blow up or at least put out of commission the Central Highway Bridge over a river that was located a few kilometers north of Bayamo, because we knew that first reinforcements would probably come via that route from the regiment at Holguin and then from the rest of the country. By air, they didn't have enough forces. And the other way was the railway, which was much easier to defend against. You just derail the train or pull up rails. It's much easier than neutralizing a strong, solid bridge made of steel and concrete. We sent 40 men to take the Bayamo barracks. The intention was to defend ourselves against a foreseeable attack by the enemy coming along the central highway at a point more than 200 kilometers from Santiago. The counterattack would come by land, and to avoid being bombarded by air, we planned to get out of the barracks complex right away and cache the weapons at various points around Santiago, so as to distribute them later to the people on the basis of their tradition of fighting for independence. On the 10th of March, when that city's regiment didn't immediately join Batista's coup, some of the officers were against it. Although, when those particular officers were removed, the regiment did join the coup. The city of Santiago mobilized to support the regiment. But I'll tell you, the city totally rejected, totally hated Batista's coup. We made very meticulous plans for the assault on the day before the attack. Everyone who was going to take part in it began gathering in small groups and very discreetly at a place outside Santiago. It was the Saboni Farm. We all arrived there late in the day before, just hours before the attack, and then we left for Moncada from the farm. It is true that most of the men hadn't been told what the objective was until they got to the farm. But once they arrived at the farm from Havana, each group with its leader would be informed of the next steps. I left last at 2.40 a.m. on Saturday the 25th, so I didn't sleep a wink for 48 hours before the attack. I got to the farm on the night of the 25th. Abel Santa Maria was there waiting for me, and the others were gathering in guest houses that had been rented in the city, and everybody had their cars so as to be able to move out when the word was given. Nobody knew about the farm before that night. There were only a handful of people who did know. Renato Guitart and I, Owen oh, Petio Sosa and Melba, and then Haiti later on. The farm had been rented in April 1953, three months before the attack. All the details were handled by Renato. He was a young fellow from Santiago, and he was the only person who knew the objective. A very clever guy who was very good, very brave, and determined. He had an excellent knowledge of the city of Santiago and its environs. He was the main keeper of a very important secret and the only person who knew what the target of the armed attack was to be. Of those who came from Oriente, 
Abel was the first one to join us to learn of the attack. The combatants were all mentally prepared. We had mobilized them several times to one place or another in the training, simulating a possible action, and then we'd sent everybody back home. This time, though, it was the real thing. We knew them all much better now. Each nucleus had its own leader. We rented cars that would transport them from Havana, almost a 1,000 kilometers or over 600 miles, to Santiago. We attacked on the morning of the 26th of July, and I had left Havana on the morning of the 25th. Almost all the others had come from Havana in cars down the central highway. Several cars flew a little flag of the Batista aides, the fighters of the 4th of September. Not me. I was better known, and anybody who saw me with a 4th of September flag would have said, what in the world is going on? So anyway, we had chosen the Saboni Farm because it was the most strategic place. It seemed to be the most out of the way of the various places where you might bring a big group together like that. Along the highway that runs in front of the farm, you could see from Santiago all the way to the ocean, right to the point, in fact, where the Americans disembarked in 1898 in the Spanish-American War. That's Saboni. And from there, the highway today runs along the coast to near Guantanamo. That's why it was perfect for our plan. There were trees, among them some mango trees with very dense foliage. We set up a fake chicken farm there with incubators and everything. We hid some of the guns in a well near the house. But most of the weapons actually arrived at almost the same time we did. I drove in a car from Havana and had a driver. His name was Mitchell Teodulio. Anyway, we arrived at the farm around nightfall. As we were arriving in the city, it was beginning to get dark. I immediately made contact with Abel Santa Maria. Each group was in one of the various guest houses where they had gone as they had arrived. It was carnival time, and we chose that day for our raid because of that, too. Because a lot of people come to Santiago, and there was a lot of noise and music and carrying on. That carnival atmosphere, which was famous, was good for us. But, unexpectedly, it worked against us because it led to certain measures at the barracks complex, which were the main cause of later difficulties. From the farm, we would drive to the barracks. It was all prepared. The cars were well hidden as we had driven them in to a series of shed structures on the farm. There were 16 cars in total, and we had planted some plants around them, so nobody could actually see how many cars there were there if you were passing by. All you would have seen were the hen houses and the incubators. We kept most of our weapons there, but a lot came in at the last moment. There were weapons brought in on Friday from Havana that had arrived only several hours before us. We had planned every detail. A considerable number of those weapons that were used in the actions on Sunday at 5.15 in the morning had been bought on the afternoon of Friday the 24th. We even bought some of those in Santiago, too, at normal businesses where they were just ordinarily for sale. So when they came in, there was no reason to put them in the well. Those weapons that arrived on Saturday have been taken into the bedrooms and put in other places in the house. As far as weapons go, I'll tell you the best weapon we had was a shotgun for hunting, a Belgian shotgun. I was familiar with it because my father had one in our house in Baran. I saw it organizing the purchase of almost all the weapons, one by one, and then raising money. We had to disguise people as sports hunters. We had to use a certain degree of cunning with sellers so as to appear as carrying out completely normal commercial operations. Contrary to what you might have heard, we had no Browning 45 caliber submachine guns there with us that day. But there were one or two Thompsons of that caliber. To sum it up, we had one M1, we had one Thompson, we had one Springfield, and we had two Winchesters. The rest were... 22 semi-automatic rifles, and a bunch of 12-gauge shotguns. I can also recall several pistols that some of the men carried individually. You know, I'm sure with what we carried, we could have taken Moncada. There was no problem there, and we could have done it with even fewer people than we had. 
That was clear from the calculations. But the real weapons of war were in the hands of the army and the soldiers there. Our mission was to seize their weapons. Otherwise, what was the point of attacking the barracks? Once the Moncada barracks complex was captured, we would have been in possession of several thousand weapons, in addition to the soldiers' own weapons. And we would have also have had access to take over the weapons belonging to the reserves and the Navy and the police, all of which were much weaker forces and would almost certainly never have tried to resist once the regiment was taken out of action. We had 160 men for this mission, 40 that we used in the Bayamo to take the barracks there and prevent the counterattack from the Central Highway. The other 120 men for the assault were reserved for the Moncada. I was to go with 90 of them inside the barracks, and all of them were armed, and everybody was wearing a uniform of Batista's army, showing the rank of sergeant. As far as how we got the uniforms, well, we made them in Havana, at Melba Hernandez's house. She's still alive, you know. And yay, yay, that is Haiti, Santa Maria. Everybody helped out. And we also had a man inside the barracks in Havana. And he was one of our own who infiltrated the main barracks in Havana. And this guy bought some of the uniforms. I'll never know how he managed that. He was good, that guy. And you start looking for people for a certain job and you just find them. He helped us tremendously in getting caps, visors, and a number of army uniforms that were already made. And you may wonder how we recognized each other and distinguished each other from the actual soldiers that were there. Well, you know, besides the kind of guns we were carrying, it was our shoes. Our shoes were not military issue. We all were wearing low-cut street shoes. But the rest of our uniforms, the fatigues, the caps, and everything else was standard issue. You can imagine what a job it was to make all those uniforms and caps and all. Most everybody was mentally prepared, as I said earlier, but there was one problem that arose, and it was a cell of five university students who were real fire eaters. They called them that because they were the super tough guys. They thought they were the bravest of all of us. But when they found out that they were going to take the Moncada barracks, they backed out. Inviting them along had been almost a courtesy because Pedrito Moret had trained several hundred students and some of them got wind of our activity. They didn't belong to the main organizations at the university, but rather to some sort of freelance combatant group. They were very gung-ho, you know. They were ready to have the world for breakfast. So, to avoid complications with them, we promised to include them in any serious action. So they joined and they came to Santiago. It was kind of an alliance or micro-alliance that we had with this little group. They were active enemies of Batista, and they had shown that they wanted to get into action, which is why the guys in this little group were mobilized. These tough guys, or apparently tough guys, because the students in general were very brave, but when they saw all the preparations and everything, and they saw the troops arriving, because all this time our troops were coming in, group after group and all that, well, they just backed out. As we were handing out uniforms and weapons, they just got cold feet. That group of tough, go-get-em, gung-ho kids backed out. So I said to them, all right, stay behind and leave after we do at the end of the caravan. Follow us, but we are not going to force you to fight. The group's mission was to take the garrison headquarters, and it would have been easy. The day we chose, as I said, was the 26th of July. And it was a very important day because the fiestas in Santiago are on the 25th of July. That is the day they have carnival. I had 120 men and I divided them into three groups. One went ahead to take a civilian hospital that bordered the rear of the barracks. That was the safest objective. The second group was to take the Palace of Justice. It was several stories tall. And we sent them with the kid who had been made leader. Raul, my brother, also went with them. We had just recruited him, and he came along as a rank-and-file combatant. The third group of 90 men was my mission, and it was to take the guard post in the general staff officer's quarters. I took eight or nine men while the rest were to take the barracks. I was to take eight or nine men to secure the officer's quarters while the rest of the men were to take the barracks. When I stopped, the other cars were to stop in front of the barracks. 
And the whole plan was that soldiers should be asleep and they would be forced out of the barracks dormitories into the rear courtyard. The soldiers were going to be in their underwear because they wouldn't have had time to get dressed or pick up their weapons. As I said, Raul had only recently been recruited to the group, and he was going to carry out a relatively more dangerous and important part of the mission, though, in my judgment, not particularly complicated. I had on my conscience all the way the responsibility to my parents for including Raul at his age in that rash and daring action. As was my duty and real necessity, I assigned myself the most complicated mission. And that was the group that was to take the entrance and lower the chain that blocked vehicle access. I had excellent combatants with me for this. We set out from the farm at about 4.45 a.m. and exactly at 5.15 we attacked because at that hour the soldiers had to be asleep and it needed to be before they woke up. We needed a certain amount of light at the same time to attack when all the soldiers were still asleep. Santiago is in the eastern part of the island, and in the summer the sun comes up about 20 minutes earlier than in Havana. There was enough light to attack. All of that was calculated. Had it not been the case, we couldn't have attempted such an action. The job was not easy with men who, though trained in small groups, had never worked together. I had 120 men, as I said, minus those students who backed out and about 16 cars, and there were at least eight of us in each car, with one car that we left for the guys who backed out and another one that broke down. That meant two cars fewer than what we had planned on. The first car was carrying the men to be on the roof of the hospital, behind the Moncada, and the second group of men would take the Palace of Justice. They had further to go than we did. My group had 10 or 12 cars, and it was to go to the main entrance of the Moncada. I was in the second car, about 100 yards behind, down the highway from Saboni to Santiago. The sun was just beginning to come up, and we were planning this total surprise before Reveille sounded. We were to arrive practically at daybreak as you entered the city. And at that moment, we had to cross a narrow little bridge, single file, one after another, each car. And that slowed us down just a little. Approximately 100 yards ahead, the first car was going down Avenida Garzone. It turned right down a side street towards the entrance to the barracks. I followed it, and then the others followed behind me. Approximately 100 yards ahead, the first car was going down Avenida. I was about 80 yards behind them at that point and just the right distance to continue on at a certain speed while they were overpowering the sentinels at the entrance and taking down the chains that prevented the rest of the cars from driving into the interior of the installation. The first car stopped when it reached its objective, and the men jumped out to neutralize the guards and take their weapons. It was at this point that I saw, about 20 yards or so, in front of my own car, to the left, the foot patrol of two soldiers. They both had Thompson machine guns in hand as they walked down the pavement. They realized that something was going on at the guard post, which was about 60 yards from them, I'd say, and they were in a position or so, it looked to me, to fire on our men in the first car, the men who had managed to already disarm the guards. In a fraction of a second, two ideas went through my mind. Neutralize the patrol that threatened our compañeros and get the two soldiers' weapons and just at that moment, I saw that the soldiers were aiming towards the entrance, which meant that they had turned their backs to me. I slowed the car and drove up closer to capture them. So I was driving, holding a shotgun with my right hand and a pistol on my left, and I drew up alongside them with my door half open. I was intending to do two things at once in order to keep them from our main objective at that moment which was to secure the guard gate area. There was, of course, another way of going about it, which I later saw so perfectly clearly. That was later when I gained a little more knowledge and experience regarding what I should have done. And what I should have done was to forget about them and just keep going. You see, if those two soldiers had seen one car and then another and another and another coming and speeding toward them, they would never have fired. But that's not what I did. What I did was to try to come up from behind them and capture them by surprise. 
when I was probably about six feet away, they must have heard some noises because they swung around. They saw my car probably instinctively pointed their weapons at us. So I drove the car into them and jumped out. The other men with me jumped out too. And then the personnel in the cars that were coming up behind us and the rest of our cars that followed did the same thing as they thought they were already inside the barracks facilities. But we were not there yet. Their mission was to take the dormitories and push the soldiers into the rear courtyard barefoot, the soldiers being in their underwear, unarmed and half asleep. They would be our prisoners then. The presence of that patrol, which had been assigned, at least I imagine so, because of the carnival festivities marching back and forth between the entrance to the barracks facilities and Avenida Garzon was something we hadn't known anything about. And because they were so close to the guard post, they drew the plan off in a very serious way. And our attempt to neutralize and disarm the patrol and driving the car into them caused all of our men to jump out of their cars with their weapons. One of the men who was with me got out of the passenger side of the front seat and fired his weapon. That was the first shot heard in this most unusual combat circumstance. And then, at that time, a lot more started firing. Firing kept spreading, and then the alarm started going off. The noise was deafening. Unbelievable. As I said, all the men who had been in the cars behind me got out, according to plan, and rushed into a long, relatively large building in the same architecture as the other military facilities in the headquarters are. Only it was the wrong building. It was the military hospital, and they rushed into it thinking it was the objective they were supposed to occupy. The problem was that the combat was supposed to take place inside the barracks complex, but it was now taking place outside the barracks complex. And in the confusion, some of the men captured the wrong building. By the time we got out of the cars, the foot patrol had disappeared. I immediately ran into the hospital to pull out the personnel who had taken it by mistake. I got them all out as they were still on the ground floor, and I managed to do that pretty quickly. I could almost get the caravan reorganized with six or seven cars because, despite everything, the guard post at the entrance had been taken. Our men had already taken the sentry post at the gate and let down the chain and entered one of the barracks inside the complex already. They had headed towards the weapons depository. When they got there, they found that the army band was sleeping there. Apparently, the weapons had been moved to the main barracks. The situation was pretty much the same in the other barracks, which hadn't been able to react to our surprise attack either. For their part, Abel's group occupied the building that they were supposed to, and the group that Raul was in took the Palacio de Justicia, or the Palace of Justice. Only that was not where the weapons were. Well, in those first moments, the soldiers were still getting dressed, putting on their shoes and running around and getting organized, taking down their weapons. It was only the guard posts that were firing, although it was mostly for the sake of noise. The Royal Guards slept in one of the barracks, too, alongside the other regiments. But they didn't sleep with their rifles by their beds, of course, and they didn't have any commanders in the first few moments as some of the regimental officers were sleeping in their own homes. The combat took place outside the barracks, so the huge, decisive advantage of surprise had been lost. I went, as I said, into the hospital building, and I managed to pull out and reorganize a small number of compañeros, and we got back into several cars, intending to drive to the general staff offices, and suddenly a car came up from behind and flew past us, drove to the entrance to the barracks complex, and then backed up as fast as it had come in and backed right into my car, just like that. One guy on his own initiative, in the midst of the increasing fire, pulled up, then backed up, and ran into my car. So I got out again. Under these adverse and unexpected circumstances, the men showed remarkable tenacity and courage. Heroic individual initiatives took place, but there was no longer any way to overcome the situation that we had created. The combat was underway and this inevitable disorganization in our ranks was now occurring. We lost contact with a group in the car that had taken the sentry post. 
The other men could only go by the sound of the gunfire, which was now decreasing on our side, while the enemy would recover from the surprise and got itself organized and began defending its positions. I realized there was no possible way of achieving our initial objective. You can take a barracks complex with a handful of men if the soldiers are asleep, but a barracks with more than a thousand troops awake and heavily armed, well, there's no way to take it. More than the shooting, I remember the deafening, bitter sounds of the alarm sirens that thwarted our plan. I still believe that the complex could have been taken with the plan that we formulated. Were I to make a plan again for a mission like that, I would do exactly the same thing. The only difference, based on our experiences, would be to not have paid the slightest attention to that foot patrol. You know, there's things that go through your head in a fraction of a second, and protecting our compañeros in danger was my main motivation at that moment. Well, the gunfire was still going strong, but recalling it all honestly and with absolute objectivity, I believe that no more than 30 minutes had passed, maybe much less, when I resigned myself to the fact that the objective was now impossible. There came a moment when I began to give orders to pull back. I was in the middle of the street, not far from the guard post. I had my 22 caliber rifle, and there on the roof of one of the main buildings in the complex was a 50 caliber machine gun that could take out the entire street, because at that point, that was where it was directly aimed. A man was fidgeting with it, and he was apparently by himself. He looked like some kind of monkey jumping around trying to ready the gun and fire. I had to do something about him while the men got into the cars and retreated. Every time he tried to use the machine gun, I'd shoot at him, and I was pretty keyed up, as you could imagine. Now, there was no one from our group to be seen, not a single combatant on foot. I got in the last car, and while I was sitting there in the back seat, on the right, all of a sudden, one of our men appeared. He just showed up, and he's about to be left behind. The car was full, but I got out, and I gave him my place, and I ordered the car to leave. And I stood there in the middle of the street, all by myself, totally alone. Unbelievable things happen in circumstances like that. There I was, all by myself, in the street, in front of the entrance in the barracks complex. It goes without saying that, at that point, I cared absolutely nothing about dying. And all of a sudden, I was rescued by another car. I don't know how or why, but a car was coming towards me. They pulled up beside me and picked me up. It was one of the kids from Artemisa, driving a car with several companeros in it, and he drove up to me, and he rescued me. I was never able later, as there was just no time, to ask him about all the details. I've always wished I could have talked to that man to find out how and why he jumped back into the hell of that firefight. <clears throat> but as in so many other things, you think you've got a hundred years to do it. And the man unfortunately died about 10 years ago. His name was Santana, and he realized that I'd been left behind. So he came back to get me. And he was one of the ones who got out and apparently at some point he realized I hadn't. So he turned back to look for me. And there must be something written, some testimonial or other something about this episode. I was absolutely alone out there. I had my 22, and that was it. And I didn't know what kind of gunfight might break out or what the end of it all might have been. Of course, I might have tried to escape down some alley or something. I fired several times at that man that was trying to fire his 50 caliber machine gun from the roof, but he never got a shot off. This man, he would try and use that machine gun, and I'd fire at him, and he'd duck. And a few seconds later, he'd be trying to make the machine gun work, and I'd fire again. Several times he tried to use it, but I don't know. He apparently had second thoughts and never did because it happened just the way I'm telling you. And while I was busy keeping the guy with the machine gun busy, our cars were retreating with the personnel who accompanied me on the mission to penetrate the barracks complex. Santana had driven a car that was full, but I told him to go to El Caney when I got in there and there were several cars waiting in the avenue to join us. But one of them in the lead didn't know where El Caney was. 
So instead of going straight down Avenida Garzon through Vista Alegre, it turned right towards Saboni. I knew El Caney well, and it was a place where there had been an important battle at the end of the Second War of Independence in 1898. It was a relatively small barracks there. My idea was to drive there and surprise them and take it in order to give support to the men at the Bayamo. Aside from the men that were with me, we weren't sure what happened to the rest of the men who had retreated. And as far as the group that had taken the Palace of Justice, those men realized what had happened and the leader came down with his little patrol, including Raul, at the exit. And then they ran into a military sergeant with several men and he ordered them to surrender. The leader of the group of our men turned over his weapons. So Raul, who had just been made a private, and others turned over their weapons. But just then, Raul saved them and saved himself. He acted quickly, very, very quickly. You see, the sergeant was holding a pistol on them, and Raul saw that his hand was shaking. So Raul grabbed the pistol and took the squad that was taking them prisoner. He took them prisoner. If he hadn't, the same thing that happened to all the others would have happened to them. Torture and execution. When they got out of there, they looked for an escape, somewhere to go, somewhere to change clothes, to get moving, and then they would disperse. As far as the numbers go, there were five killed in the combat and another 56 who were murdered afterward. Almost all that were killed in combat were in that first car, those who took up the positions of the first building inside the complex after they had taken the sentry post. Several of them, though, did manage to survive. You know, we all still had the sergeant uniforms on at that moment. I was terribly bitter as we drove away about what had just happened, but I was ready to go on with the struggle. Here I was, having been picked up in another car, and we went back to the Saboni to regroup after the attack. Several cars had gone there, so I found a little of everything there. Men who wanted to keep going and others who were taking off their uniforms. Some of them were stashing weapons there, and some were wounded people who couldn't walk. It was a very sad sight. I got there, and what I did was to convince a group of them, 19 of us in all, to take off into the mountains. I couldn't give any more support to the men of Bayamo. I, I wasn't going to give myself up. I wasn't going to surrender or anything of the sort. There was no sense in doing that. Not because I was going to be killed, but because the idea of surrendering was just inconceivable to us. Thank you for listening to bonus episode 135 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.